As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, we pray that you would grant that we would hear and read and learn and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, as I said earlier, we're glad to have you here. Um, We've been considering a series through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to consider together the first 12 verses. Mark is the second book in the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And you'll find our reading on page 1065 of most of the Pew Bibles. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 12. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, And go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. As we come to chapter two of the Gospel of Mark, we're entering really a new section. Uh, one commentator has called this, this section of Mark's gospel, Conflict in Galilee. Um, one of the things we'll see in, in Mark is he will pick certain scenes of Jesus' ministry in Galilee that bring out his conflict with the religious leaders. Um, at first, like it is in our passage, it can be a little in secret. They were questioning these things in their hearts, we were told. Later, it will be more open Uh, controversy with Jesus and his disciples. But Mark seems to be picking and choosing various scenes from Jesus' ministry in Galilee uh, that he wants to highlight to draw out this conflict. Uh, This conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and to show how through this conflict Jesus taught more about his mission and about his person. Uh, We learn more about who Jesus is and what his work in the world is through these conflicts 
that happen. And we have one such conflict this morning as the scribes begin to question by what authority Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. Um, And so this is a collection of stories that Mark has brought together with the purpose of allowing the conflict to provide a forum for Jesus to reveal glorious truths about who he is and what he's come to do for his people. We want to see how that plays out in this passage by looking first at an act of faith, the act of faith that brings the paralytic man to to Jesus. Then we want to look at the announcement of forgiveness that Jesus makes over this man. And finally, think about authority in focus as that becomes the central question of the story, the authority of Jesus. So that's how we want to think about this passage together this morning, an act of faith an announcement of forgiveness and authority in focus. Uh, The story begins, as I said, some days later, Mark says. It's not necessarily he wants to put all these stories chronologically in their place, one after the other. Um, He he says only that they were in Capernaum after some days. So he's not being clear with us when exactly this happened. We don't know when, but we know where. And that setting is significant as a context for this story. Capernaum is where Jesus was in chapter 1, healing many people, um, healing all those who were brought to him, uh, we're told in Mark 1.32. And maybe that presents the, the idea for these four men who carry a paralytic to Jesus. They hear that he's at home, probably at the home of Simon Peter again, although we're not told that for sure. That seems to be where he stayed when he was in Capernaum. But what we are told is that he's at a home and he's preaching. He's fulfilling his his main mission to preach the word, we're told. And it's standing room only to hear Jesus preach. Uh, The house is filled with people. Mark said the house was so filled with people, you couldn't even stand at the door to hear it. Um, People are crowded in to hear Jesus preach. And it's in this context, in this setting, that these four men bring their paralytic friend to try to bring him near to Jesus. And I think clearly with the hope that he will be healed. Uh, Many had already been brought to Jesus and healed, we were told earlier in Mark. And so we can expect that that was their hope. That if they brought their friend and they could just get him near to Jesus, that he might be healed. Of course, the problem they immediately encounter as they come to the house is they can't get near Jesus. Um, And so what do they do? Well, they go up to the roof um, to let him down through the roof. Um, Now, in most houses in those days, there would have been a staircase running up the outside of the house to the roof. It wouldn't have been that hard to get onto the roof. Uh, The roofs of their houses were rather flat. Um, sort of like the climate here. They didn't get a lot of rain or snow that they had to worry about. So the roofs could be fairly flat. Um, And they used those roofs. They used their roofs to work on. Uh, They used those roofs sometimes for sleeping when it was too hot at night. And so those roofs were substantial. They were meant to be walked on, worked on, slept on. Uh, We're not talking about like a little thatched roof. And they, they have to dig through. It's a major demolition project. Um, I tried to imagine Jesus preaching to this crowd of people, and all of a sudden you hear someone trying to dig through the roof and think, what on earth is going on? Um, It must have been very disruptive for them to dig through and dig through enough of a hole that they could let the man down on his mattress. 
Um, sorry, boys and girls, I don't think anything that exciting is going to happen in church today. Um, we can listen for it, but it would be a lot harder to dig through this roof, wouldn't it? It's at a pitched level. Um, but they, d- they do that. They dig through. It's a major demolition job, but they do it. And they, it shows how much they want to get this man to Jesus, how convinced they are that if they can just get him near to Jesus, that he can be healed. Um, and we... Don't have to guess at what, you know, what motivated them to do this. I mean, you're, you're digging through the roof of someone else's house, right? You know, it's one thing to do a major demolition job on your own house. It's another to do a major demolition job on someone else's house. And, you know, you can imagine people in the crowd thinking, what, what on earth are you guys thinking? Um, and, of course, it's Jesus who lets us know what they're thinking. It's Jesus who lets us know what motivated them to do this? What motivates all this effort? Um, well, Jesus says, in ver- well, we're told in verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, it was a measure of how much they trusted that Jesus could do for their friend what his, their friend needed the most. That Jesus alone could solve their friend's problem. And they trusted in that so much that they were willing to remove any obstacle that they might draw near to Jesus so that he alone could do what their friend needed them to do. And for Jesus to call this faith helps us to understand something about the nature of faith. What is faith at its fundamental level? It's trust that Jesus alone can do for us what we need done. That Jesus alone has the power to do what we need done, to solve our problem. And that if we can just draw near to Jesus, we can find the help we need. Um, That's a wonderful kind of picture of faith, isn't it? To trust that Christ alone can do what you need done. And to know that drawing near to him is the only hope. Right? It wasn't like there were many people they could have taken this man to who had the power to heal him. As far as they knew, there was one person who could heal their friend. And they were going to do everything they could to bring him near. That's a picture of what faith is. To believe that Jesus alone has the power to save. Jesus alone has the power to deliver. And it's only by drawing near to him that we can find the solution to our problem. That we can find what we need. And the good news is that we don't have to dig through to find Jesus. Right? They went to try to draw near to Jesus and they found a crowd that they couldn't get through. And they had to go up on the roof and do this major demolition job to get through the roof and dig down to him. The good news is we don't have any of those obstacles in drawing near to Jesus. What did we hear in our assurance of pardon this morning from Romans chapter 10? The word is near. You don't have to climb up on a roof to try to get to Jesus. You don't have to dig down to find Jesus. You don't have to go up to find him. You don't have to dig down to find him. He's near. He's near to you. 
Paul said it's, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus has removed the obstacles to coming to him and promises that all those who draw near to him, he will solve our greatest problem. He will meet our greatest need. And he teaches us something about that in the announcement of forgiveness that he pronounces over this man. You know, if you'd have asked his friends, what does your, what does your friend on the mattress need? What does he really need? They probably would have said something like, what are you, stupid? He's paralyzed. What does he need? He needs healing. He needs to be able to walk. That's his most pressing problem. And imagine after going through all this work and all of this effort, they lower Jesus through the roof of the house, and Jesus, they bring him near, and Jesus sees their faith, and Jesus says to the man's son, your sins are forgiven you. Is that how they expected that conversation to go? You know, I think the story is so familiar to some of us that we can't really be shocked by that statement. Or we can't see it as a kind of change of what we would have expected to hear. Everyone who's been brought to Jesus in need of healing, Jesus has healed them. That's how this has worked through the Gospel of Mark. You bring people to Jesus, he heals them. That's how it's gone this whole time. And if we'd been called to fill in the blank, not knowing this passage, and we saw this man lowered to Jesus, and he saw their faith, and he said, Son, and we were asked to fill in the blank, we would say probably, be healed. Rise, take up your bed and walk. That's what we have been geared up to expect in Mark's gospel. But Jesus does the unexpected. He doesn't say, be healed. He says, be forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. That's the announcement that Jesus makes over them. I don't think it's what the friends would have expected. I don't think it's what we're meant to have expected as we see Jesus preaching. As we've seen Jesus healing, driving out demons, it's not what we're meant to expect. But think again of the context of this story. What has the crowd been hearing? They've been hearing Jesus preach the word. And what is the word that Jesus has been preaching? You might say, well, we don't know. We're not told. Well, Mark has told us what was characteristic of Jesus preaching. He came proclaiming the gospel of God. He came, as we're told in Mark 1, 14 and 15, saying, Repent and believe, for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is near. We need to repent because we cannot enter the kingdom in our sins. We need to believe because that's the only way we can find forgiveness of sins is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so it might not be fitting for what we've read and it might not have been what they expected when they lowered him down but was perfectly suited to what Jesus had been preaching. What do you need? You need to be forgiven. 
I need to be forgiven. We are sinners, and our sins disqualify us from fellowship with God. We cannot draw near to God as we are. And so, as this man draws near to the living God come in the flesh, what better word could he have heard? What more pressing need did he have than for his sins to be forgiven? What better word could have been pronounced over him than, Son, your sins are forgiven you? Wouldn't we all desire to hear that from the lips of our Savior? What would that do for you if you could think back to a time in your life when Jesus spoke directly to you face to face and said, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. We've said before, one of the hardest things to believe is in the forgiveness of sins. What a wonderful resource that would have been to have heard that. I wonder if the friends were disappointed. I wonder if they were delighted. We're not told how they reacted. The only reaction we're told about is the reaction of the religious leaders who were gathered there. The scribes who hear this pronouncement. Who hear this man who's been preaching the necessity of repentance, the necessity of faith, the necessity of being reconciled to God. And then when this man is lowered down and presented to him, he says, Son, you are reconciled to God. Your sins are forgiven you. You are not under the condemnation of God. And how do they react to this announcement of forgiveness? They immediately begin to question their hearts by what right Jesus says that. And that's why from the moment Jesus makes this pronouncement, his authority becomes the focus of this story. That's why following right on the heels of this announcement of forgiveness comes this fundamental question By what authority? By what authority does he say that? By what authority does Jesus dare to pronounce the forgiveness of sins? That announcement, they recognize, these scribes, these interpreters of God's word, they recognize that announcement as a claim of authority. That Jesus in that moment is claiming the authority to speak for God. The authority to forgive sins. That's what he's saying. And they recognize that immediately as a claim. And they begin to wonder in their hearts, what gives him the authority to say something like that? And I think as they think back through the Bible that they know, they're scribes of the word, they would say, well, a prophet might come and say, thus says the Lord, Your sins are forgiven you. Prophet may come and announce that word that he's been given from God. Nathan did that for David after his sin with Bathsheba. He came and told him that that the Lord had forgiven him his sins. A prophet might say that. A priest might be able to offer atonement. According to the law, the priest could offer the sacrifice for atonement and, and declare in God's name that your sins were atoned for. He could go through the rituals and pronounce 
the rites of atonement. But in these people's minds, they would say, well, Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is not a priest. By what authority does he do this? Who can do that? Who can say that but God alone? And unless he's God, he's blaspheming. He's taking on himself something that belongs to God alone. How can he do that? By what authority does he do that? That has to be blasphemy. He has to be taking on himself what belongs to God alone. Notice they question this in their hearts. They don't say anything to anyone. But they're thinking it. They're questioning it in their hearts. And Jesus then proceeds to prove his authority and to answer their questions. Um, He is going to set forth a proof of his authority by healing this man. But we might say he could prove his authority just by the fact that he knows the thoughts of their hearts. Right? They question Jesus in their hearts, and then we're told in verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. You know, it'd be one thing to sort of be the, the religious leaders who think they know everything, sitting there and thinking to themselves, I don't know who this guy thinks he is, and then have him say to you, I know you're thinking to yourself, who do I think I am? be a shocking thing for someone to be able to see what's in your heart. Especially when you're questioning them within your heart. He immediately perceives what they're questioning within their hearts. And he answers what they've been saying in their hearts. That enough, that in and of itself might have been proof of who he is. Who knows the thoughts of the heart but God alone These experts in the law, these experts in the word might have thought back to Psalm 139 and what David said there. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. They might have thought just on the basis of the word that he was who he said he was, but he's going to set for them a decisive proof of who he is. Decisive proof of his authority that would both answer their question and prove the truth of what he says before this crowd that's gathered here. And so he sets up this proof by asking the question that he asks in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Um. What does Jesus mean by setting that question? He says, you know, what you're saying in a sense is it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. It's a harder thing to forgive them. It's easy to say that, but there's no way to prove it's true. Right? Because God alone knows whether you're reconciled to him. And Jesus is saying, that's sort of your accusation. It's easy to say, but do you have the authority to say it? Where's the proof? How would you prove it? And so Jesus said, yeah, you might say it's easier just to say this because there's no way to prove it. You know what would be harder to say? 
to this paralyzed man, rise, take up your bed and walk. It's the harder thing for this reason. Jesus says, if I say it and it's not true, he stays paralyzed where he is. And you and everyone gathered here know that I don't have the power to do what I say. That's what makes it the more difficult thing. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. There's no way to sort of give you hard evidence that that's true. It would be more difficult, wouldn't it, to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. There would be the hard evidence right there before your eyes of whether or not I have the authority to make true what I say. This is a decisive moment to prove the truth of what he says. It's a decisive moment, not just for everyone who's gathered there, but for all of us. Because what does Jesus say to all of us when we come into the worship service every Sunday? He says, if you believe your sins are forgiven you. Right? I don't have the power to forgive your sins. I make a pronouncement. God has called me and all the pastors of our church to be his ambassadors. To bring his word. And we come representing him. And when we come representing him, we say to you in his name, your sins are forgiven you. It's not the same thing exactly as Jesus saying that straight to you, as he said to this man on the bed. But it has the same effect. Right? We come with his authority when we say that. When we say that on the basis of his word, we come. And if he has the authority to forgive sins, that means we're all forgiven. If he doesn't have the authority to forgive sins, it means we're all still in our sin. This is a decisive moment, not just for this crowd, but for every crowd that's ever been gathered in Jesus' name. To prove he has the authority to make good on what he says. To solve our most pressing need, which is the salvation of our souls. He comes claiming that authority. But he has the authority to pronounce it by his divine authority. And he has the power to provide it. That he, by the power of his divinity, will bear in his humanity the wrath of God against our sins and set us free from it. Everything depends on this. Everything depends on this. Not just for them. Not just for the paralyzed man. For all of us. Does Jesus have the authority to do what he says? And the proof is there decisively that he does. That what he says is true. That he speaks with authority. He says, I've said what you regard as the easier thing. Now I'll say the more difficult thing and show you that I have the authority to make both true. And so that you would know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic and says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And he does what he's told. He gets up, he takes up his bed, and he walks out of the room. We can imagine that crowd parting in amazement as this paralyzed man walks out with his bed. And the proof is shown right there that Jesus has the authority 
to say what he says. And his authority is validated not just before these religious leaders, but before the entire crowd that's gathered there. They see and hear the announcement of forgiveness. They hear the challenge as Jesus presents it. They see the proof of his authority and they validate what God has done. They regard the work of Jesus to be the work of God. And they stand not only amazed, but glorifying God. Right? They were all amazed, we're told in verse 12, and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Earlier they had said, this is a teaching with authority. Not like we've heard before. And here is a new kind of authority, not like they've seen before. Uh, And they glorify God as the one who's done it. It's one of those moments where Jesus clearly declares who he is. And he does it again, not just for the sake of the people that were gathered there for that day and time. He does it for us. He did it for our sake to prove that he has the authority to forgive our sins. To make good on the pronouncement that he makes to us in his word and in his church. He wants us to know that he has the authority to pronounce it. He wants us to know who he is. Maybe we, again, we're so familiar with the New Testament that when he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. We just pass that title without thinking much about it. He's never called himself the Son of Man in the Gospel of Mark to this point. This is the first time. This is something new. This is something new that he says about himself. This is a declaration he makes about who he is so that we would know him. And know it is who speaks with this authority. You know, what was the problem that the scribes had? They had their categories and they were saying, well, I don't think he's a prophet. I don't think he's a priest. By what authority does he say these things? And the reality is, he's not just a prophet. He's the prophet. He's not just a priest. He's the priest. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of Man come now into the world. That's by what authority he does what he does. And that's a name he expected them to recognize. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on the earth. Um, That was a title they should have recognized from God's word. They should have recognized it from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. I'm sure you all immediately recognized that as the reference to Daniel. Uh, But in case you didn't, this is what Daniel says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. You've maybe heard that Jesus loved to self-apply this messianic title to himself. Of all the, the ways he described himself, this was the messianic title he almost always used of himself. 
because it had all of the messianic clarity with none of the messianic confusion. The other titles, Messiah, Son of David, they were so tied up with nationalistic expectations that people would have immediately thought, he's here to save us from the Romans. He's here to establish the Jerusalem again, to set up the people of God again. And Jesus doesn't want any of that messianic confusion. But he wants this messianic clarity to be heard. Who is the Son of Man? He's the one who's been given dominion by the Ancient of Days. Everlasting dominion. All authority. And it's a kingdom that shall not pass away and that shall not be destroyed. What does that mean for his dominion, for his kingdom, for his authority? It means that he is an everlasting king and the word he speaks is an everlasting word. What, What is the problem with earthly kings? Their word is only good so long as they live. Once an earthly king dies, the next king might come along and change the pronouncement. Sort of like the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, and then another Pharaoh comes in Exodus who doesn't know Joseph, and immediately begins to oppress all of Joseph's people. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't want to remember Joseph. He was a different kind of king. That's the danger you have in all of these kingdoms in the world. One king might say this, another king might say that. What is the promise that's given to us in the Son of Man? His kingdom is an everlasting dominion. His rule and reign extends over all, and it extends over all forever. It will not pass away. It cannot be destroyed. And why is that important? It's important for this reason. This means the proclamation this king makes stands forever. What he says will be true forever. Because he will be king forever. His decrees will never be annulled. And what does he come and say to his people? Child, your sins are forgiven you. That's a word that will stand forever. That's a decree that cannot be undone. It will never be destroyed. It can never pass away. It is just as good as if he'd said it to you face to face as he said it to this paralyzed man. That's why Jesus wants to know that us to know that he has this authority. To declare this as an everlasting word over his people. If he's declared to you by grace through faith that your sins are forgiven you, you can be sure that that word of his will stand forever. There is nothing in this world, in the world to come, that can take the truth of that word away. Nothing that can make it pass away. Nothing that can destroy it. You can't do anything to destroy it. No one else can do anything to destroy it. Because the Son of Man has spoken it to you. And to him has been given all authority and all dominion forever. Do you see why Jesus didn't just want the scribes to know and the crowd to know, but he wanted you to know? So that you could know for certain where you stand with God. He extends this to all of us by faith.
and says to each one of us to trust ourselves to him. That he has the power to solve our greatest need, which is sin that's made a separation with our God. That he has the power to forgive that sin and to qualify us to participate in his everlasting kingdom. And that he comes with the authority on earth to forgive sins, yours and mine, and to make that word stand forever. And he promises that to all who by grace draw near to him through faith. And so it's our earnest prayer that we've all heard the gospel, that we would respond to it with repentance and faith, and that all of us here might find life in the name of Jesus, the Son of Man, our everlasting King and Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that our greatest needs are not physical but spiritual, that we have sins that have made a separation with you, and unless there is intervention by your holy work, we cannot be forgiven. But we thank you that the Son of Man has come, our Lord Jesus Christ, to earth to declare that he has both the power and authority to forgive sins and declares to us that if we put our faith and trust in him, he will deliver us from our sins. We thank you that that word will stand forever because he will be king forever. That the authority you have given him as the ancient of days will be his forever. We pray that all here would submit to his lordship and his kingdom. That we would bend our knees in repentance for our sins, turning away from them and turning to the Lord in faith. That we would find rest for our souls and life in his name. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.